0: One of the concepts of life and logic that I try to instill in my children is the concept of consequences. As adults, we're familiar with this. We get it. It is often the potential consequences of an action that keeps us from performing that action or even motivates us to do it. We see consequences in everything, from chemical reactions to punishment by the law from gaining a little weight to contracting a fatal disease. Actions have consequences. And When it comes to the rule and character of a holy God, the consequences can be quite severe. As we continue our study of the example of Israel in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see not only the privileges they have that we unpacked last week, but also the punishment they incurred. Look at verses 5 through 10 with me of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Paul continues as he addresses the Corinthians, and he says, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This morning we will see three components of God's warning to us, the church, through Israel. Three components of God's warning to us through Israel. We've already talked about the fact that this whole chapter, or most of it, is a warning to us. It is an example to us. Not an example to follow, but a strict and harsh, severe warning. We didn't so much see it last week as we talked about the privileges that Israel had that are parallel to the privileges that the church has. But this morning, we get into horrible, horrible consequences for their sin. The first component of God's warning to us through Israel is the devastating destruction. The devastating destruction. Let me read for you again verse 5, which says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. He begins with that word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Friends, you would be hard pressed to find another occurrence of this word that provides such a radical and shocking contrast to what has just been said. The usage of this word connects all the wonderful and wonderfully unique that is miraculous. Privileges, advantages, and blessings that the Israelites had from God himself. Advantages that we have as well. They were God's chosen people, as are we. They had God's personal presence and intimate provision, as do we. His unequaled protection. And this wasn't a one-time deal. This wasn't a distant memory. This wasn't, oh, remember 20 years ago when we started this wandering, when we crossed through the Red Sea. No, these were daily, daily advantages that Israel had for every moment of 40 years, the cloud, the fire, the manna. Nobody had it better. Nevertheless, their bodies were left strewn about the wilderness as a result of God's displeasure. He loved them. He provided for them. He guided them, he protected them, but they disobeyed. And while still doing all those things, he was at the same time displeased with them. The Bible says not well pleased or not pleased. It can have a subjective, uh, a mixed meaning in our day. But in this context, what Paul is saying with these words is that God was angry. And as we see in this very verse, he was violently displeased. This word means that God's judgment fell upon them. And as we will unpack in the following verses, there were specific sins that were practiced that led to many being killed, destroyed. But the most significant issue here is that they did not enter the promised land. This was the whole point. Freed from Egypt and go straight into their own land promised by God. This would have been a relatively quick trip. So why the 40 years? Why the death of so many? In Numbers chapter 13, 12 spies, as you recall, are sent to survey the land, the promised land that they were to inhabit. Ten of the 12 spies said, we can't do it. We can't overthrow it. There are too many people that we are to overthrow and conquer And they are physically too big. In other words, despite all that God has already done, despite walking past the cloud, the miraculous cloud that led them, their bellies full of miraculous provision of manna, as they left to spy out the land, they said, we can't do it, meaning God can't do it. They did not believe that God could bring them into the land. They lacked faith. That's key. They lacked faith. And these 10 of the 12 riled up the rest of Israel, who then also lacked faith and were afraid. Even declaring to Moses in Numbers 14.2, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. It It would have been better if we had just died, beaten to death as slaves. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. They went on to say, and I'll paraphrase, forget Moses. We need someone else that's going to lead us back to Egypt. In other words, we need a leader who's not going to listen to God. Go back to Egypt. Oh, how soon they forgot. Ten of the twelve, leaving two who said, no. We can conquer. We can inhabit. God will lead us into the land. You know who they were, Joshua and Caleb. God's response? As you say, so I will do. You're afraid to enter the land? Then because of your lack of faith, all the men, 20 and older, their corpses will fall in the wilderness. No men, 20 years of age or older, were allowed to enter into the promised land. Numbers fourteen twenty nine tells us this, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And then he said, for every day that you spied out the land, you will spend a year wandering in the wilderness, giving plenty of time for those 20 and older to grow up and die. They spied out the land for 40 days, thus the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now for the same reason, but even Moses and Aaron were disqualified from entering the promised land because of their disobedience in Numbers 20 when Moses struck the rock for the water to flow instead of speaking to it. Good reminder that God wants us to obey absolutely. He still had faith. He struck the rock instead of spoke to it. Really, that's going to keep him from the promised land? Yes. People were killed instantly for trying to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling. Remember that? They were trying to help they didn't want the Ark of the Covenant to fall on the floor, and God struck them dead because he said, you don't touch that thing. God wants us to obey fully and completely. But back to our text, Paul says they were laid low. What does that mean? That means to strike down. That means to annihilate. That means to spread all over. They were killed. According to the census in Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, that's not just the ten spies. That's not a couple hundred He declared, because of their lack of faith, according to the census, perhaps even more at this point, that he would kill 603,550 men. Devastating destruction. In the the midst of God's grace and mercy, we too, we tend to forget. We forget the practical reality of his holiness and his wrath. We overlook and take advantage of his provision and his protection and his guidance and his love. We will not be struck down, most likely. He could do it, but we are in a time of grace where he is patient with us. We are not to abuse that patience. We are not to abuse that grace. We are not to forget the majority of your Bible. we striking down men 20 and older was not even the most brutal thing that he did. Read the Old Testament. He says, I want you to go in and conquer Saul, and I don't want you to leave one man, one woman, one child alive. Kill the kids, God says. God is holy. God is wrath. God is angry. He's patient with us. He was patient with the Israelites. But we forget, and we trifle, we play around. With his grace. Devastating destruction. There's a second component of God's warning to us through Israel, and that is the purposeful pattern. The purposeful pattern. Verse 6, Paul writes These things happened as examples for us, the Corinthians, but also all Christians in the church age, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Examples is the Greek word tupos, it's type. It's not a word, at least in this usage, that is familiar to many, especially if you have not studied theology. It means a paradigm, a model. It's literally, back then, a mold for producing a certain shape, right? They would have something that they would press into clay, and it would be the same seal, the same shape every time, making an imprint. That's the idea here. And what Paul is introducing here, and he does a couple other places in the New Testament, is introducing what we call in theological terms typology, which is a pattern or correspondence between two things. I apologize last week if you were confused when I said Israel is a type of the church. We think of type like a, a type of dog. right? He's a golden retriever. That's a type of many dogs. Type here in theological terms means a pattern set before us. Typology is an understanding that in the Bible, there are patterns that can be found. In individuals, in actions, in events, even in institutions, that will correspond to future redemptive acts of God. We see this all over the Old Testament. For example, Moses delivering them out of Egypt is a type, a pattern for Jesus Christ. He's a foreshadowing, a forerunner. And here, Paul is saying That Israel is an example or a type of the church in that there is a potential pattern of sin and subsequent response from God. The key difference in typology here being that the pattern is something that we are to avoid, not to follow. In layman's terms, all of this happened to provide a horrific warning for us. We are not to crave the evil things that they craved, which we'll unpack in the next point. The Greek word here is the one we translate as lust. In other passages, it is a strong desire, usually used in a sinful desire, most often used in a sexually immoral desire. Here we see it's all kinds of evil craving. And this general sin of lust, of craving among the Israelites led to four specific sins that Paul will discuss in verses 7 through 10. They were idolatry, immorality, testing God, and grumbling or complaining. And as horrible and shocking as what happened in the wilderness is, we can praise God that He provides this exemplary warning for us, the church, a reminder We've all been in situations where we have made a choice that has literally saved our lives because of the lessons, the warnings from those who have come before us. Something as simple as putting on your seatbelt every morning or not getting too close to the edge of that cliff on a hike. Though there are some of us who are too bold for our own good, also known as foolishness, a quick news story, or a gory picture sets us straight. We get scared straight, as they say, and God's desire is that what we are about to see in the life of the Israelites, life and death, I should say, will scare us straight in our walks with God and our understanding of who He is. And so for the most of our time this morning, I want to Go to point three, the third component of God's warning for us through Israel, the specific sins. There are four of them, all of which are presented as being addressed to the Corinthians. You can see uh, parallels to what Paul has already addressed with what is going on in the Corinthian church. This doesn't mean that only these four sins God is displeased with. But there are four particular sins that Israel led to Israel mass destruction and that the Corinthians are playing with as Paul writes this very letter. Let's look at them one by one. The first specific sin was idolatry. Idolatry. In verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. The quotation of the Old Testament that Paul makes here in the second part of the verse tells us that Paul is referring to Exodus 32, the golden calf. Moses, their leader, was up on Mount Sinai communing with God, fellowshipping with God. It was in this visit that Moses received the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And he was up there for some time. So in the midst of the delay, Aaron makes a golden calf out of the Israelites' gold earrings. He melts them down, makes this calf, later claims, uh, lies, claims that it just appeared out of the fire. He did it. He made it. And they worship this idol as the one who brought them out of Egypt. Aaron says that. Here's the God who brought you out of Egypt. Aaron went so far as to build an altar before the calf and offer the same burnt offerings that were prescribed for the Lord. It is no excuse, but it may help to know that they had been surrounded for years by Egyptian idolatry. So they were familiar with idolatry. They understood how to do this. And what they were doing, and this is important, they were essentially trying to use a pagan idol, a false idol, To worship the true God in this sense, that they were thanking a man made statue for a very real thing that God did, which was to deliver them out of Egypt. Essentially, this is what all idolatry is not just false religion idolatry, but even idolatries of the heart, the more common idols of Christians and, frankly, modern-day Americans, Christian or not. It is this, a misdirected and false worship for something that God has given you, but that you attribute to someone or something else. I'm going to say that again. And that could be your family. If you idolize your family, success, money, Buddha, Muhammad, a golden calf. It is a misdirected and false worship for something God has given you or that only God can give you, but that you attribute to someone or something else. I'll be content if I get this, rather than saying God can give me that, has given me enough to be content. Go to this priest, this idol, this thing in life. If only I can have more money, if only I can own a home, if only I can have it's misdirected worship, it's idolatry. Because you're taking an object, even in religious idolatry that is just an object and saying, I want this to give me faith, peace, joy, whatever it is, when it is only God who can give you that and probably has already given it to you. The verse ends by saying the Israelites stood up to play. We'll talk about immorality next, but this word has sexual overtones along with dancing and revelry and worship of the false God. This is not good dancing. This is not David worshiping God and thanking Him, dancing and rejoicing. This is the kind of, of dancing you would see as you peek into the, the deep levels of some cult and say, that's, that's gross, that's disgusting. Not, not just in the movements, but, but there's something about it in why they're doing it, who they're doing it for. And this is what they were doing with the cloud right behind them, by the way. The thunder and lightning, knowing that Moses is up there, knowing that the thunder and lightning and the shaking was because God was on that mountain, and still they did this. Probably singing and dancing even louder because of God's thundering was too loud for them. Immorality, as we'll see in the next verse, was closely connected to many false religions back then as well as in the Corinthians day, Paul's day. The connection between the Israelites' idolatry and the eating at idols' temples that we saw in 1 Corinthians 8 is very clear. Just like the Israelites, the Corinthians, by recklessly participating in the cultic feasts, were trying to balance their relationship with God while ma- making use of their liberties. We saw this very clearly in chapter 8. And from there, we see the clear connection between the Corinthian sin and our sins. The attempt, perhaps not in a pagan cult, in a temple, in a Catholic church or whatever it may be, but the attempt to balance our relationship to God while indulging in the world. That's what we're talking about in Christian liberty. Even those Christian liberties that are gray are often of the world, if not in practice, then in our attitudes. So what? He's got to deal with it. Bible doesn't forbid it. He just needs to grow up. So sinful, so selfish. So it may not be a temple to Aphrodite or a golden calf. It may be your boss. It may be your desire for success, your desire for family, children, the idea of children. It can even be something that is not not directly in your life, like a politician or a social movement. You can fall into idolizing those things and making them the center of your world while giving a slight nod to recognition, to God's provision, but really focusing on the thing provided rather than the provider. That's idolatry, isn't it? To find your hope and joy in the thing provided, or the thing you hope will be provided, rather than the provider himself. When the Israelites did that, they not only dishonored God, but they brought judgment on themselves. Ultimately, we need to ask ourselves, how deep is our desire for God's honor and glory in our lives? That's very important. Because the, the takeaway for the person who doesn't want to change and repent and excel still more is that, well, God's not going to kill me, and I can't lose my salvation, so mm, thanks for the lesson. Maybe I'll pray more, but I'm still going to do this, 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 and pursue that, 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 and that. It's about God's honor. It's about God's glory in our lives, not just a fear of judgment, a passion for worship. And going back to what I said earlier, let me give you a little clue. When you're focused more on the provider, rather than what is provided or that you want provided, then chances are you're no longer going to want Him to give you that thing because you're going to be content in what you have. Because if you think, well, if I focus on, I've tried focusing on God and He still didn't give it to me, you haven't focused on God. You focused on that thing. And and I'll go deeper. That thing can even be a, a godly spouse, obedient children. We can idolize those things as well. Good things can become idols. Service in the church can become an idol. I can make preaching an idol. Church attendance can become an idol. We've got to be careful. They practiced idolatry. The second sin we see is immorality in verse 8, immorality. He says, nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. The immorality spoken of here is the same we have seen earlier in 1 Corinthians. It's, It's sexual immorality. It means to engage in illicit, unlawful sexual acts, unlawful according to the Bible. Fornication is another word for it in some of your Bibles. And Paul is referring to Numbers chapter 25, where we are told of the Israelites being invited to join in the pagan worship of the Moabites, which they did. Numbers 25 verse 2 says that the people ate and bowed down to the Moabite gods. There are two groups in that area, the Moabites and the Midianites were uh, different people, but basically the same group that they were sinning with. Now, as I mentioned earlier, because of basically how they practiced religion, but also because religion was more a part of society back then than it is today, this idolatry led to them having sexual relations with the Moabite women, which is another thing aside from idolatry that God explicitly forbade. The specific Moabite God that is named is Baal of Peor, As a result of worshiping this false god, God, of course, was angry with Israel. And the first thing he does as punishment is he tells Moses, gather all the leaders of Israel, all the top men, all the leaders that you have designated, and kill them. Kill them all, Moses. And then later we are told that God brings a plague that that God sent upon them. Thousands died because of their idolatry, and their immorality. Naturally, the Israelites were sad. I would imagine because people died, less than because they realized they dishonored God. We can hope that was part of it. So they're mourning. They're weeping. Their sin, over their sin and the resulting deaths. And while this large crowd of Israelites is mourning and weeping. One Israelite man takes a Midianite woman by the hand and brings her into his tent to sleep with her. Walks right by them. Numbers tells us they all saw it. The plague was ended because one righteous man, Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, takes a spear in his hand, walks into that man's tent, and while they are lying together, thrusts it so hard that it pierces both of their bodies, and they both die. And you say, how could he do that? Shouldn't he go talk to them? Confront them? Isn't that what God would have preferred? Well, your answer is in the fact that when Phineas did that, God ended the plague. Sin is to be taken seriously. In our day, not this seriously. Don't kill anyone, please. But you get the point. Phineas was declared a righteous man because of this. If that quickly, 24,000 were killed, how much longer? Every second that passed. How many more hundreds would have been killed if if? Phineas just said, "Mm, should I use a sword or a spear? Just in those two seconds, more would have died from the plague. God stopped the plague because of what Phineas did, because one man took sin seriously. We're told in verse 8, so the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. The next verse tells us in Numbers 25 that 24,000 had died by the plague brought on by their sin. I want to make a quick side note because the numbers don't match up in Numbers 25 and 1 Corinthians 10. Paul mentions 23,000, 1,000 less than the count in Numbers. It's not a salvific, salvific issue. It's not a doctrinal issue. Even people who try to claim that the Bible is not true don't even use these verses it's not a huge issue. I just quickly, I want to tell you there are several possible explanations for this. We don't know which one is right. The first is we can safely ex- assume that it wasn't exactly 24,000 that died, right? It wasn't to the zero, you know what I mean? So it may be that Paul is rounding down while numbers is rounding up. Paul says that they died on that day. The second option is that it may be that 23,000 died on that day. And a 1,000 more died on subsequent days because they had the plague. It just took them longer to die. Again, it's not a major issue. Back to our text. We again see that the connection between idolatry and sexual immorality was very close. We've talked uh, before about prostitution being an integral part of the worship of Aphrodite, whose temple was in Corinth in in Paul's day. Archaeologists have told us there were a 1,000 ritual prostitutes in that temple. We have enough archaeological evidence that, that has been found that we know the implications of such cults on, on everyday life. They were, they, were, they were woven into everyday life, which included sexual license. For the Corinthians, that whom Paul is writing to, Aphrodite was the god of sailors. She was also the, the goddess of sacred prostitution and was the protector of the city. And this was important for them. The non-Christians and the non-Jews believed this. It's part of their life to have people sleep with this temp- these temple prostitutes so she would continue, Aphrodite would, protecting the sailors in the cities, this whole city. Perhaps this is even where the stereotype of what sailors do when coming ashore was established. Much like many social groups and politicians today, back then in the Corinthians time there was almost a competition-like relationship between the different cults regarding who could allow the most license and licentiousness. We see this today, don't we? Our current president is actually getting in some heat right now because the stuff he's doing, the progressives are unhappy. You're not far left enough. And so there's a competition. There's a push. That's how it was in the Corinthians day. Uh, We have a thousand ritual prostitutes at Aphrodite's temple. What do you have? And so they wanted to be the most liberal, the most free. Though as Christians we avoid flagrant immorality, we are influenced by it. We are tempted by it. Our consciences can be seared by it. And then... Rather than flee immorality, we flirt with it. You know, today many Christians fall into immorality because they are overconfident in their spiritual strength. I can handle it. I can watch that, no problem. I'm okay. No, that beach doesn't bother me. I can handle it. And just as idolatry and immorality went hand in hand in ancient times, you understand because of a, a physical practice, the prostitutes would be there. You would go and worship and do these things with these women. But so too the idol of the heart today can easily lead to immorality. You say, I, I don't get it. How could desiring more money lead to immorality? Let me explain. Our idolatry today is all about feeding ourselves, right? It's about our pride, our comfort, our happiness, our desires, what we want. Not what God has provided, not what God says is enough, but what we want. What is sexual immorality? No one has an affair to say, oh, I was just trying to serve her. It's what I want. Let me read that same list again with a different sentence. Sexual immorality is feeding ourselves, our pride, our comfort, our desires, our happiness, what we want. Same thing. It doesn't have to be the actual idol, the actual sin. It is the mindset of the Christian that says, I'm going to get whatever I want, whatever it takes. And for me, what that is, is more money. You really think it's going to stop there? I've said it before and I'll say it again. I rarely counsel a Christian couple with marital issues that don't clearly have other idols. It's usually money, but it could be something else. Even in the secular world, what are divorces about? Money, disagreements about children. Idols. Idols. We need to be careful. What's the common excuse that you hear when someone has an affair? I know it was wrong, but it just, we're going through a tough time, and my husband was always belittling me, and this guy was just so kind. He made me feel better. Her body reminded me of what my wife used to look like 30 years ago. It's all about what I want. I'm not saying if you find yourself idolizing the the job and desiring to get a raise that you're automatically going to have an affair or, 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 or have intimacy before you're married or something like that. I'm talking about the mindset. The mindset is dangerous. If you think that you're idolizing money or comfort has nothing to do with sexual immorality, then you are fooling yourself because ultimately it isn't the thing you idolize but the fact that you put self before God. And that's it, isn't it? When you put yourself and your own desires before God, you really think it's going to be limited to one thing? Think about any sin. You're mad at your boss, and you're telling me that did not affect dinner time that night with your wife and kids. You know it did. You're frustrated with your kids this morning, but hey, they finally got dressed and came in, so you're worship freely. You're not, you came in this room undistracted. No, you didn't. Sins bleed over to everyone and everything in your life. Because it's not that particular issue. It is your heart. It is putting yourself before God. And if you are willing to do that for any base desire, then what makes you think you can avoid the basest of desires? Immorality 24,000 killed. The third sin was testing the Lord. Testing the Lord. Verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. This is Numbers chapter 21. Israelites speak out against God and Moses because they were tired of the manna. They wanted normal food like what they had back in Egypt. Now we read this and say, Food was miraculously appearing and if you recall from last week, miraculously spoiling exactly the next day and not spoiling on the Sabbath every single day. So, again, this wasn't a distant memory. They're grumbling because of what's happening. They're tired of manna. And so we read this and we say, these, these dummies, don't they get it? God was there. God was doing this. And yet we get it. You say, no, I would never do that. Want to give me a call when your wife announces it's left overnight? Didn't have time, just going to warm up something in the fridge. Oh, this again? We just talked about this, didn't we? A few seconds ago, holding on to personal desires to the, to the degree that we overlook the incredibly gracious and miraculous provision of God. So they spoke out against God. They spoke out against Moses. Rather than being thankful and overwhelmed with this incredibly miraculous, gracious display of provision, they started to see God's provision as miserable and vile. They started to see God's provision as miserable and vile. We do this. When we're angry with our spouse, That last blow up at your spouse, did you do that at the altar on your wedding day? No. What happened? Even the stuff that we idolize and we finally get, pretty soon it breaks, it tarnishes, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. A new version comes out. Kids come home and say, Oh, my classmate has a better one. Made fun of mine, and all of a sudden you're back. And God's provision that you are so thankful for at a year ago, a few years ago, you're now frustrated with and vile and say, well, keep up with the times, God. So they spoke out, which was simply a reflection of what was in their hearts. Let me read for you Numbers 21, verse 5. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. (laughs) See, they weren't saying there's literally, they, they weren't saying they were starving. They're saying there wasn't the kind of food and water that we want. And in so doing, they put God to the test. This is what Paul means by try the Lord or put Him to the test in the ESV and NIV, it means to test his patience. We understand this, right? We say this, don't try me, don't test me, don't push me. Specifically, it is to see how far you can go in trying his patience for us as Christians before he disciplines you. Kids do this with parents. Students do this with teachers. Christians do this with God. We push God to the limit. We see what we can get away with. And the Corinthians wanted to see how far they could take their liberty. You understand that God is not irrational. He's not out of control. He doesn't just explode in anger. There's a reason. This isn't like when we talk about another human being and we're talking about pushing someone's buttons, right? To the point that they just explode and Anyone or anything in the room gets yelled at. He is patient. He is gracious with us. But his patience and grace do not make him ignorant nor blind. He sees and he knows what you are doing. And more importantly, he sees and he reads your heart. Do not take advantage just because you are free from judgment the Israelites were destroyed by serpents. In a smaller picture than that of Christ's crucifixion, God shows us how He views sin, how gross sin is. He's killed people. That would have been merciful. Just kill them again. Just drop dead. We've seen this all over the Scriptures, even in the New Testament. But he wants to show them how vile their sin is. How holy he is. How he views sin. So he sends probably what would have been hundreds if not thousands of snakes into their camp. I mean think about this. This isn't at the zoo where there's one bow constrictor and you're tapping on the glass when it says don't tap on the glass. Say oh that's cool. Can okay, see that? Could you imagine if You know, you guys have seen these videos online in other places in the country where someone opens a toilet and there's a boa constrictor coming out or someone finds a little garter snake. You know, a lot of my friends do this. They're gardening. There's a little garter snake. An old high school friend who just posted, she saw her first rattlesnake go across as her and her teenage girls were hiking. What would you do if you saw that? What would you do if you woke up and there are dozens of them all over your house? This is what God did to them. They're called fiery snakes. They would bite them, and then the Israelites who were bitten died. And once again, Moses intercedes for them. God relents, but the serpents do not go away. Remember this? He says, I want you to make a a bronze serpent, put it on a staff. In the middle of the camp, and when someone's bitten, they can look at the bronze snake, and they will not die. But they're still bitten. They still experience the pain, and the fear is we're going to be a snake in our tent again th- tonight. This morning, can I go get water without getting bitten? This is serious stuff. Even when God relents, people are still bitten. And the snakes are still there. I believe C.S. Lewis's picture of God as a lion, Aslan the lion, is fitting here. You're familiar. Many of you are familiar with the story. The children, children, played, rode on, hugged the great beast. But he was still a lion and not someone you would trifle with. Don't try God. He loves you. He's your Papa. He's your Abba Father. He killed his son for you. If he was physically present, he would be hugging us all the time, comforting us. But he is still a lion who is holy and hates sin. Don't push him. Don't test him. Don't try him. Fourthly, Grumbling, grumbling. This is not some sort of intense, gross, weird, perverted complaining. This is just complaining. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. It's unfortunate that without even looking at the Scriptures as Christians, when you think of Israel, they are characterized by grumbling, complaining, discontentment. It simply means to complain, to vocalize dissatisfaction with something. Here it also involves the idea of God's judgment on someone who grumbles rather than giving thanks and responding in obedience. And this is what the Israelites did, and frankly, it characterizes pretty much their whole time in the wilderness. We don't know exactly which incident Paul has in mind here. There are two notable narratives, Numbers 14 and Numbers 16. Numbers 14, which I talked about in the beginning of our time this morning, Israel grumbled against their leaders, Moses and Aaron. This was in conjunction with the spies' report about their belief that they could not take the land. In Numbers 16, they complained and even rebelled, we are told, against Moses and Aaron. They grumbled about the positions that Moses and Aaron had. They were jealous. They didn't like their leading. They didn't like, frankly, that they were they wouldn't, maybe would not have vocalized this, but they didn't like that they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do, leading them where God told them to lead them. We read in number 16, they also desired the priesthood. Why do they get to be priests? Why can't we be priests? Same thing in the church. Why are they deacons? Why is he an elder? Why can't I be? Why does he get to read Scripture up front? Why can't I do it? We also read they accused Moses of wanting to kill them. By simply being in the wilderness, you want to kill us, Moses. That's why we're here. Not saying we sin. That's why God killed so many of us. They blame Moses. You're trying to murder us. They grumble against them because of the death of those God killed. Ultimately, what they were doing was saying that God was wrong. God was wrong in appointing Moses and Aaron. They were saying that God was wrong in bringing them out of Egypt and that God was wrong in punishing those who grumbled. The result was, as Paul says, they were destroyed by the destroyer. The destroyer was, is simply the one who God uses to carry out divine judgment. Most likely the one who killed all the firstborn in Egypt. We see this destroyer in other places as well. The lesson for us is clear. Any sort of grumbling, any sort of discontentment or complaining is an affront to God. Because when you complain, when you are discontent, you are saying that His wisdom, His love, His grace, His goodness, His righteousness are okay, but I can do better. I know better. This wasn't some trivial thing. We know that they were constantly moaning, transformed into a, source, a form of self-pity among the Israelites. They started seeing themselves as victims upon whom God put various difficulties and trials. We do the same thing when we complain, when we're disc- discontent for too long. Why does God keep doing this to me? And all of a sudden, in your mind, you're not an object of grace and mercy. You're a victim. Trust me, if you were a victim of God, it'd be much worse. We can so easily fall in the same trap of setting the same pattern in our own thinking. It starts with something small. Just something small. A meal, your house the thing you have to fix in your house, your your kids, your relationship with your spouse. And then you're more and more, you convince yourself that you're right. No, I'm right. I'm right. This this is something that is out of place. It's not how it should be, what I deserve. Then that self-confidence grows and you start targeting other issues in your life. It's not just the one kid. It's all the kids. It's not just the spouse. It's the whole family. It's not just the pillars in this room. It's the preaching, the people. Because you're right. Again, it's a hard issue. If you're right, hey, man, the, you, there's no way you're just right about that one thing, right? You've got to be right, period. And that's what we convince ourselves of when we complain too much. Think about it. One of the biggest complaints, the biggest sources of complaint resulting in one of the greatest judgments of Israelites was simply food. How much more if you are not content with your station in life, your spouse's behavior, your financial status, the plight of others in society? Clearly, God does not take this lightly. Understand that being content and grateful for God's honor is imperative, but it's also for your own good, for your view of life, for your understanding of who you are before a holy and righteous God. Friends, we must beware. Like the Israelites who directed their anger at their leaders, Moses and Aaron, so too we can blame other people. Because we dare not say it's God's fault, but we are ultimately questioning God and His sovereignty. You say, I'm so discontent, I'm so frustrated, this is not what I want, this is not how it should be, but, but, but it's not God, it's my husband. It's, it's not God, it's my boss, it's my job. I would like to believe that I have taught you well and your theology is better than that. Ultimately, you're saying it's God. It's God. You're not content with what God has given you. You're not content with the abilities, the gifts, the spiritual disciplines that God has given you to handle those things. You're not content with what we'll see next week, that the promise... That in all temptations, the Lord has provided a way of escape so you can handle it. Despite what all the debates and blogs may say. It's about God's sovereignty. This doesn't mean you just kind of let go and let God. And this doesn't mean you just take whatever the world throws at you. People persecute you for your faith. You stand strong and you preach the gospel. Be a good steward. You pay for something and they cheat you and don't give it to you. You tell them, hey, this isn't what I paid for in a righteous way, not getting mad and angry and accusatory. This isn't what we're talking about here. And if your spouse is not a believer, you don't just say, oh, you're right, I need to trust God's sovereignty. No, you preach the gospel. You preach the gospel to her. You preach the gospel to him. If your spouse is a believer and not walking with the Lord, you don't say, Well, God is sovereign. You confront. You get counseling. You get help. This is all within the understanding of being content. We still excel still more, try to excel still more. We still strive. We still pursue righteousness. We still repent. But we cannot grumble. We must not grumble. It's such a simple thing that slips into our lives all the time, every day. Because it's what you want. No, nobody gets everything they want. I tell my kids this all the time. Nobody gets this. I mean, we live in the Bay Area. Show me one person that feels like they get enough sleep. Tell me one person that says thinks they make enough money to survive in this area. Nobody. But we're content. We trust the Lord. Three components of God's warning to us through Israel the devastating destruction, the purposeful pattern, and the specific sins. Again, actions have consequences. We've seen some horrifying consequences on the people of Israel. But the people, uh, the example of the Israelites that serves as a warning to us. Should not be heeded simply to avoid consequences, but to indulge in them, to indulge in the positive consequences, because not all consequences are negative. Don't just avoid, we should seek God's glory. We should seek the service of others, the evangelization of the lost. Heed the warning, but if for you that means just avoiding, then look again. Put off, yes, but also put on. Steer clear, yes, but also pursue. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that we are prone to grumble, we are tempted by immorality, we have idols in our hearts. Heavenly Father, help us to be thankful, guard us, protect us, watch us, help us to repent, help us to recognize these things. Help us to heed the warning, the example of the Israelites. Thank you that we do not live in an age and a time of your history and plan where we would be struck dead whole church the majority of the church deadly animals coming to bite us or maul us you're patient you're gracious may we not test you may may we not push that father w- whether it's a whether it's a, a show on Netflix that w- we need to stop fast-forwarding through the immoral scenes and just stop watching that show or certain people we need to avoid. Or stop getting frustrated, discontent when we look at other people's cars, other kids' gadgets, our own bank accounts. Whatever it may be, Lord, help us to flee immorality, to run from temptation, to be those who are grateful and thankful, to excel still more, to be content. We need your strength to do this, Lord, and it's because you give us that strength we want to do these things. Make us this kind of people, Lord, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and sing.